Such thing as a fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you from Oranmore in Glasgow, Scotland. My name is Dan Shriver, and please welcome to the stage it's Anna Jasinski, Andy Murray, and James Horkin. Once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact this week is that for just one penny, you can rent a bee for a month. (laughs) (laughs) What what are we doing here? (laughs) So... (laughs) What would you do with one bee? <laughs> well, you'd make friends. You'd, you'd take them on, on expeditions. You know. So, uh, we've, as we've mentioned before on this podcast, a lot of bees in, in America live on trucks. And the reason that they do... <laughs> like they, lost, they lost the home, the marriage broke down. <laughs> um, no, it's because um, they move around the country all the time uh, to because they're rented out to pollinate crops. And they have this whole like basically a tour schedule where they move from area to area pollinating a new crop every few weeks and there's a massive crop uh, the Californian uh, almond crop the almond um, and that needs one and a half million beehives which is a total of at least 30 billion bees which is amazing they all arrive around the same time. And so the, the, they arrive, they pollinate the crop, and then they go. Um, and an American beekeeper, whose name is Randy Oliver, <laughs> <laughs> has calculated the cost of it, and he worked out that the cost is one uh, penny, one US penny, in fact, so a bit less than an English penny, uh, per bee per month. Bargain. So one English penny would get you one bee for two months. <laughs> yeah. I uh, think it's about 1.6. Six weeks, yeah. Mm. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not worth it. <laughs> It won't work for the holiday, I'm thinking. Actually. Yeah. So you must you must get more than one, presumably. You must do it in. Well, yeah, you what is the few... you, there's no there's no like number of bees, and then the minimum option is one. Sadly. <laughs> so what I'm asking is, what is the minimum number of bees that I can hire? Don't know. Okay. You, you could probably. I've got a tenner in my pocket. <laughs> it is. It's a Scottish tenner. That would get you. <laughs> They won't accept that, James. <laughs> Trust me. Hang on, wait. If it's one penny, let's just let's just thousand. say it's one penny. So it's a, a thousand. Pen- wait, 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 wait. <laughs> it's a thousand. <laughs> but I don't think that's enough for a hive. I think you might. Have, I think the minimum is probably at least one hive. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, do you know how, how bees collect pollen? I didn't no. know this. It's so cool. So um, they go and bees will go out. They'll either be collecting pollen or they'll be collecting nectar. They never do both at once. You don't want to mix those two. Um, and if they're collecting pollen, they get onto a flower and it, they get covered in pollen because they've got, you know, they're hairy, they're furry, and so pollen sticks all over them. But that's okay because they've got <laughs> combs on their front four legs. So they use the combs on their front two legs to comb the pollen, pollen out of their antennae. 
tenai, and they use the combs on their middle legs to comb the pollen out of their fur on their body. And then they've got these two kind of buckets on their back legs, which I think they're called pollen baskets. And they're like literally, I mean, they just look like little baskets on the back of their legs. Wow. And they crush the pollen for once they've combed it out of their hair into these two little baskets. And then they carry it home in their pollen baskets. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, the, the one really amazing thing about bees is that they have a positive charge. They're electric. Bees are electric. If you're putting them into a remote control or... Uh, <laughs> do you get double B and triple B batteries? <laughs> so what happens? So the bee flies through the air and it kind of hits, um, hits particles in the air and that gives it a positive charge. A bit like if you get a balloon and you rub it against yourself and that gives the balloon a charge. It's a bit like static. But the um, flowers have a negative charge, and that means that when a bee goes into a flower, the pollen will actually jump, just jump from the flower to the bee. Wow. Whoa. Using electricity. This, I've, I've read today, um, bees don't pee or poo in space. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you go to space? I don't go to space to poo either. Well, That's the thing. Yeah, but if you were in space, you would at some point. So, oh, I uh, see. So when we send bees up there... Yes. Ah, so they hold three, it in. Yeah, yeah. So a bunch of bees were sent to space, and uh, <laughs> in space they, they actually started... So a lot, a lot of uh, little insects have been sent to space, particularly flying insects, to see how they can cope with, uh, with flying. Mm. And there's, I watched some amazing footage today, by the way, of uh, pigeons inside one of those vomit rockets that go down. Oh, they let them loose. So if you don't know the vomit rocket, it's where they film zero gravity without leaving the Earth's atmosphere. So you can do And also actual astronauts use it to practice being in zero yeah, G. Yeah, exactly. So, so the, basically the plane is, what is it, it's falling? At the... So it goes up in, in a parabola and it kind of makes it feel like you're weightless. Okay. So you fly around and, yeah, so on. And uh, <laughs> the, you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they brought pigeons on board. And the pigeons just didn't know what was going on because they couldn't, they were just flying and bump, bumping into walls. At one point, a pigeon is flying upside down, and the others are like, what the hell? It's, it's really confusing. That's, that's where pigeons will get their alien abduction stories from. <laughs> So they brought, they brought a bunch of bees into space, and they, they brought houseflies. And they, houseflies, actually, they say for houseflies, it's a no-fly zone. They just don't bother. They don't even try. They start trying. They can't fly. So either they just try and cling to the wall, or they just stay still and just float everywhere they go. <laughs> so houseflies don't fly in space. Right. Bees kind of, after about seven days, worked out what to do, and they managed to. Uh, they even built a honeycomb. They even managed to uh, to make residence. And um, the the main thing they noticed, though, is that they just didn't go to the toilet. They were holding until they got back to Earth. Well, I think it's because they were put in an enclosed hive, a space hive, weren't they? And bees do not defecate in their own hives. Uh, uh, they don't shit where they eat. Yes, and so yes. they literally thought, well, if I can't get out of this thing, then I'm not going to poo in it. They're too polite. So they held it in for a week. Yeah. Yeah, because if they held it in thinking, oh, I'll do it when I get back, that's quite optimistic because they're, they're just bees. They don't know that they're actually going to come back, do they? No. Wow. Yeah, so interesting, eh? Moths, when they went into space, actually uh, learned to... I think they were the smartest flying creature. They learned that they could kind of float in space. So when you try to flap, it doesn't really work because you get so disoriented. But the moths in zero gravity very quickly realized that they could change the method of flying and turn more into seagulls. And then they just sort of floated <laughs> around on the air. Right? Yeah. Oh. Cool. That's very cool. Well done, moths. Very clever. Do you know why um, 
honeybees die when they sting you. Uh, so most, the vast majority of bees don't die when they sting you, um, but most honeybees do die when they sting you, and it's because all of their insides are falling out. So what? I know, it's really sad. What do you mean? Uh, it's, uh, so when they put their sting into you, I think human skin is a bit too hard, so they can't properly uh, retract their sort of barbed stinger as it comes out. So instead, what it does is, rather than leaving behind just its sting, as it tries to pull away, it leaves, aw- it leaves behind inside you its digestive tract and its abdomen and everything. So, and then that, it's not really a bee anymore, it's just a lump of fluff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So that's over for them. Well, you've, you've found mirth even in a horrible, horrible <laughs> fact. Um, but they, they, they evolved to mostly... They mostly sting other insects or other bees. Or Yeah, so that's, that's what yeah. the sting is really for. And they have no problem stinging them without, you know, without that happening to yeah. them. Right, so only yeah. when they sting something with really tough skin. And to, to, to a bee, we have really tough skin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we need to move on soon to the next fact. Oh, so... can I just talk about other things you can rent? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> James. <laughs> you were very lucky to get off with a caution, I don't think. <laughs> guinea pigs. You can rent guinea pigs. Can you? Yeah, guinea. in Switzerland you can rent guinea pigs. Oh, yeah. Uh, but only Switzerland as far as I can find. And that's because, according <laughs> to Swiss law, it's illegal to have one guinea pig on its own. You... You need to have a second guinea pig because oh. they're really kind of sociable creatures, and if you have one, they get lonely. And so the Swiss made a law against wow. it. And so what happens is one of your guinea pigs dies, and you're like, okay, now I've only got one guinea pig. I'm going to have to get another one. But what would happen is you get a young one, and then the old one would die, and then yeah. you'd have to get another young one, and you'd just be in some horrible cycle of just always getting more and more <laughs> guinea pigs. <laughs> So, <laughs> some people have seen a gap in the market and thought, you know what we can do? We can rent one until the second one dies. And that's a thing. God, I must say, the, the Swiss parliament really does have time on its hands. <laughs> in Japan, you can rent an attractive man to wipe away your tears. <laughs> what, is, there, um... is there a phone number or a website? <laughs> 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 I ordered one for you. He's Thank backstage. You <laughs> um, yeah, isn't this totally bizarre? It's definitely true. It's a Tokyo-based company. It's called Ikamiso Danshi, and uh, that means apparently roughly translates as handsome weeping boys. Um, and it's if they're, you know, it's for women specifically, uh, and apparently women are prone to going to the workplace or whatever and bursting into tears, and so we need to hire attractive weeping boys to come, turn up to the office, wipe away your tears and comfort you. Um, okay, interestingly, mm. I have been to Tokyo and I have seen the clubs they have, which are kind of just handsome young men clubs. They're, they're for women, they're aimed at women, and the, <laughs> they're aimed at women, and I didn't go in, but... It's just sort of, just sort of like handsome young men hanging around in there, looking cool and a bit emo. And the bills are very unreasonable as well. <laughs> Fifty thousand yen for a coke. <laughs> but that sort of fits into that trend. Yeah, it's sort of yeah that's a, amazing. Yeah. It does. Yeah, I'm sorry that sounds traumatic for you. It's, weird. it's a very good thing odd... you've got um, little Olaf waiting next door. It <laughs> was a really good Japanese name. I just improvised. <laughs> <laughs> Samurai Olaf. The, uh... yeah. We should move on to our next fact. Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Iceland imports ice. <laughs> yeah, it actually does. In shops now, you can get ice. 
uh, in Iceland. It's in particularly this one shop, which is called uh, Hagkup, and it's a sort of grocery store, and they, they import ice. You buy them in blocks of four, and it doesn't make any sense at all because the water in Iceland is uh, rated a total 100% for freshness. So it, it, they've got great water that you can yeah. turn into ice, but they bring it in from Norway, so they now import uh, ice from Norway. That's really good. Yeah. I found this out by, uh, via the Twitter account of a guy called Jon Nar, who was the mayor of Reykjavik, and... He was actually a comedian who hated what was going on in the country, and he thought, this is just bullshit. I'm going to run as mayor of Reykjavik. So he said, I'm going to set up a party. And they said, what are you going to call it? And he said, the best party will be the best party. <laughs> so they set up the best party. We've spoken about this on the podcast before, and he, uh, he made all the promises that anyone wanted him to make. So he was like, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And they said, we want free towels. He went, you'll have free towels. When I'm mayor, everyone will have free towels. Is that yeah. the first thing that the people demanded? <laughs> I think they wanted to test the grounds first and see what he was going to go for. What, he did what? also say yeah. afterwards, by the way, here's my main promise. Whatever you ask for and I agree to, I will break once I become mayor. So when <laughs> he became mayor, he said, you're getting no free towels. <laughs> um, I didn't know that uh, Britain exports ice to China. Do we? Yep. Yeah. And to Sweden. Uh, British exports of ice to China have tripled in the last three years. Wow. Probably from quite a low base. But still. <laughs> but still. Um, we have a comp- there's a company in uh, Yorkshire uh, called the Ice Company. So not very good name. Yeah, not. I mean, a, good, a descriptive name, if nothing mm. else. Um, and they make 500 tons of ice a day. They're in South Kirkby in Yorkshire. And this is the cool thing. They so they have these machines which make ice, uh, massive machines, and they make um, 300 pound blocks of really crystal clear, you know, beautiful looking ice. And uh, it's made in these huge freezing compartments, right? And the water gets frozen in cylinders, and then, you know, huge blades chop it up. And then the cubes of ice are blow-dried so they don't <laughs> stick to each other. Whoa. Whoa. Really? Yeah. So somewhere That's there's cool. like someone whose job is to be an ice hairdryer. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That is weird. Yeah. Um, well, clear ice is very sought after, and I think this might be why this Norwegian ice has been imported. Because oh, yeah. I think it's for, it's Mr. Iceman, isn't it? Yes. Which again is a very good name, and it. Uh, so I went to the Mr. Iceman website, and it's the Mr. Iceman ice that's now being sold um, in Iceland, and they advertise the fact that they've got the hardest ice in the world. Uh, so you can, if you're if it's a special occasion, you drop one of these blocks of ice in your whiskey, and it takes twice as long to melt. <laughs> as an ordinary block of ice. So that's, that's what everyone wants. It says, for those that appreciate a whiskey cold but not diluted, they will cherish the ice block, which is actually quite a good idea. <laughs> Do you know the Queen likes ice? But she d- Does she? That's a great fact. <laughs> but she doesn't like the noise that ice makes in the glass. Does she have special flunkies to whenever the ice is getting close to the edge of the glass to just dip their finger in and uh, let it rebound off? I don't think the Queen would like fingers in a drink. <laughs> she drinks gin and du, uh, du bonnet or du bonnet. Uh, it's her favourite drink, and she hates the noise that the ice makes. And so her favourite flunky, Prince Philip, invented a machine. He invented a machine that makes tiny ice balls that don't grate against each other. And so now she can have her drink, and it doesn't make any noise. He invented Prince Philip invented a machine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they say it's tough at the top, but I had no idea <laughs> just how tough it was. Well, they make, sorry, they make tiny ice blocks. Tiny little ice balls. Those are popular. I've heard about them in uh, fancy bars and things. They have, they have sort of hand-carved ice balls, which right. you can buy. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, some unusual imports. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so Germany imports Lederhosen. Whoa. Really? Yeah, there's only a hundred, oh, there's fewer than a hundred uh, businesses making Lederhosen left in Germany, and they get most of them from China now. Oh, so that's one thing. Australia imports dingo urine. Imports? Yeah. Where are the dingoes outside Australia? I think the thing is with dingo urine, it's quite important that you have to get it from a captive dingo. You can't just go into the wild and just grab a dingo. And like a lot of zoos around the world have dingoes in them. And so they get the urine from these places and then they import them into Australia and they use them to deter other animals. And make fosters. It's not true. I don't think it's even made in Australia. And I'm drinking it now and I love it, so... <laughs> I feel really bad about that comment for a number of reasons. Uh, and it's illegal to bring dirty mattresses into Canada. What? What? You're not allowed to import a dirty mattress into Canada. You have to have it fumigated, and you need a letter from the fumigator proving that you've done it. <laughs> I wouldn't want someone bringing a dirty mattress into my house. No. And what, what is a country but a big house? <laughs> Doesn't Canada mean large village in, like, an old um, Native American um, language? I don't know. It does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I believe it. When you, say, when you say doesn't this, you mean this is a thing. <laughs> yeah. um, France imports all its frog sticks, doesn't it? How does it? Uh, yes. Yeah. From Southeast Asia? Uh, yeah, I think mainly from uh, the Philippines, Indonesia. Oh, no, mainly from Indonesia and some from Japan. And, yeah, I think frogs, frog farming is now illegal in France or... Um, yeah, I think you can't really farm frogs in France, yeah. but they still consume them, and so they get them all from Southeast Asia. And they're becoming massively endangered frogs in Southeast Asia, lots because the French eat about an incredible number of tons of frog legs a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's very bad. It is indeed. Um, corpses, uh, the corpse trade <laughs> is picking up. I think. Uh, it's a problem in some countries like Turkey that um, uh, people don't want to donate their bodies after they've died, and so there's a, uh, a cadaver shortage. Is it for, like, dissection? and? For... It's for dissection, uh, yeah, so for medical purposes, and for, like, crash test dummies, so if they're testing um, aeroplanes <laughs> or things like that, they use human <laughs> They do that. They don't, yeah, they don't corpses. tell you that when it's the uh, donate your body to science. Um, <laughs> they sit you in cars. Andy, this is true. They sit you... Wait, who, who is they? <laughs> They sit you in cars and they just slam the cars into walls. And they see, because with a crash test dummy, a real crash test dummy, you can't tell what things will break in an actual crash. So it's saving people. All blown up by a landmine. That's another potential option. Is it? They, te- they test landmines on... Which I would have thought is very obvious. If a landmine blows stuff up, it blows stuff up. But no, they test... Uh... <laughs> but then the important thing with that is you need to know if there's a body part this distance away, where was the original landmine? So it's all that kind of thing. This go. is all very important science, Andy. They actually... Someone invented, just on landmines, someone has invented, uh, this is quite a while ago, um, seeds that uh, you scatter out into fields... And when the plants grow, they touch the landmine metal. And so what would otherwise be, let's say, a yellow flower then goes red. So for all these countries that still have unblasted landmines, you can now see them. It's a quite a beautiful solution, they say, to, to how you can yeah. avoid amazing. dying. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You've got these Unless red you patches. don't know that they've done that and you want to pick a nice bunch of flowers. <laughs> and they... These yellow ones are a bit boring, Some... aren't they? <laughs> when do you go and get a bunch of the red, Danny? <laughs> And that's Valentine's Day ruined. <laughs> uh, we need to move on to the next fact. Okay, let's move on. Should we go for it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James Harkin. 
Okay, my fact this week is that the most dangerous invasive species in Britain is a poo-eating mussel from Transylvania. It's true. It's true. This is a really bad, evil mussel that's come in from Transylvania, uh, and they are blocking up our toilets. Uh, I would have thought they'd be helping relieve the blocked toilets. (laughs) Yes, that's a good point, but they have to live there, and they are really, really good at reproducing. And uh, one female is capable of producing one million babies in a year. Oh, yeah, what's she called? (laughs) (laughs) So how are they getting here? Um, On on, on ships. Yeah, on ships, bilges and things like that. So when a ship is going from one place to another, they actually collect water from one area to kind of keep the ballast. And then when they get to the other place, they'll often release it, and then you'll end up with species moving from one place to another. It's, It's like the bees. It's exactly like the bees. Okay. Yeah. They're the bees of the ocean. Yeah. yeah. It's, basically, it's our fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. They were happy in Transylvania. We brought them over, and they did what they did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's not just humans that can bring invasive species, because I went to a Glasgow um, museum today, and they said that there's... Uh, what was it? It was, a, it was a plant called spearwort, and that's been brought to this area, and it's causing a real problem, and it was brought on the feet of geese. <laughs> so when they flew over, from, I think, from Africa, they carried this little plant over, and now it's become an invasive species. So it's not always us. Oh, thanks wow. so much, geese. Those <laughs> 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 oh. um, guys. So mussels get a bad reputation, don't they? They've got, if you look up mussels, there's pretty much no one's got a good word to say about them. They're invasive species everywhere. And yeah. uh, they're a problem in the Great Lakes in America, I think. Um, so are, these, are they quagga mussels? Yeah, uh, quaggers. Quaggers um, and zebra uh, mussels, in, in I think. In America, they have zebra ones. And here, they, we have quaggers. But they're both yeah. named after sort of horse-like creatures. Oh, yeah, because a quagga is like an extinct type of zebra. Right. Isn't it? What's up with hmm. that? Quagga mussels, one of the things they do to uh, native species of mussels, they literally sit on them and kill them by doing that. So there's yeah. a spe- I know they physically push them into the sediment on on river bases and things like that, and the, sort of the native species are, are crushed. And one of the species which is at risk, one of the native species of mussel, is called Pseudanodonta complanata, and its common name is the depressed river mussel. <laughs> <laughs> what a grimly prophetic name! Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, they ruin ecosystems, like yeah. ecosystems, don't they? So in yeah. in Great Lakes, uh, they eat all the algae, I think, which then stops feeding organisms, which then feed other organisms, and it wipes out everything. And so you're just left with a lake full of mussels, which is a disaster. Yeah. But I think they shouldn't get such a bad rep because they are um, natural water filters. Oh, yeah. we, you could just drop a mussel in some dirty water and then drink it a little bit later. You couldn't do that, but um, they do. <laughs> they do sieve water. So when they are uh, when they're looking for a meal, then they uh, they take the water in and they filter it through their tissues, and they absorb some of the stuff that they want from the water, and then they release the rest of it. And what they absorb are a lot of the uh, horrible chemicals in the yeah. ocean. So they'll absorb herbicides, they'll absorb like flame retardants, they'll absorb a lot of the poisons that we put into the oceans, um, and they will release purified water. So they're using that to remove contaminants in quite a lot of lakes. Well, of course, that's one of the reasons why they make us so sick if you have a bad one, because they're kind of filtering dirty water and leaving nice water, but they keep all the nasty things that make people sick. And then if you get a bad one, yeah, that's why you get sick. Yeah. So this quagga, one of the reasons it's quite bad is not only does that eat human uh, excrement, but there are other animals that eat its excrement. 
and one of them is a killer shrimp um, that they call the pink peril. And it... <laughs> whenever it comes into any, whenever it goes into any lake, it kills all the other shrimps there. Um, and so these two guys always kind of co-invade um, lakes or rivers. So whenever there's a, a mussel there, there's always the killer pink shrimp there as well. Right. And that's why it's, like, doubly bad. That's mortifying, isn't it? You're not even the guy who eats the poo. You're the, <laughs> you're the guy who eats the poo of the guy who eats the poo. <laughs> wow. You know there's actually animals now that disguise themselves as poo so that they don't get eaten. Is that right? Yeah, so they would, if the mussel was around, they'd be in big trouble. But most animals... <laughs> Don't eat them. So they, they, there's one that's called the moth caterpillar. So the moth caterpillar does have uh, sort of little white bits on it and little brown bit, and it will disguise itself in a sitting position to look like bird droppings. So it's just quite safe. Anytime a bird sees it, it thinks, oh, that's poo. I'm not going to risk it this time. So you've got, <laughs> like you've got the, uh, the moth caterpillar. There's the orb-weaving spider. Uh, there's a giant swallowtail butterfly, and then this one's really on the nose, bird-dropping spiders. <laughs> and they, they all do that. They all disguise themselves. It's an evolutionary uh, thing. And yet, then they give themselves that giveaway name. It's sort of like, what was the point <laughs> in going to all that trouble? <laughs> they should have called themselves just some bird droppings, nothing to see here. <laughs> so NASA have actually asked uh, the community of scientists around the world and, and said there will be a prize for this if you can convert poo into an eating product because when we go for these long-haul missions to Mars, you are going to need everything that you can get uh, yeah. to be reused as potential uh, source for something, and they think poo might be what we can use for food. Right, and what is the judging panel of this competition? Heston <laughs> <laughs> Blumenthal. <laughs> Actually, you know, Heston Blumenthal has now contributed to space food. Has he? Yeah, so Tim Peake, the British uh, astronaut who's gone up in space, oh, yeah. he uh, worked with Heston Blumenthal and his people, and they've created a bacon sandwich that can be made and eaten, and a cup of tea that can be made wow. and drunk. And they're made out of poo. Well, they didn't tell Tim that, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's quite cool. So Heston's already getting into space. Great. Oh. Wow. Um, speaking of defecation and Transylvania, which is where these <laughs> um, this poo-eating this muscle comes from, there's the Salina Turda salt mine, which is this huge salt mine. And uh, it was a salt mine until 1932, so it's massive. I think it's in the capital, the biggest city in Transylvania. Um, and it sounds like the coolest holiday ever now. Have you seen it? Really? So no. they converted it. So it's this uh, massive expanse of mine uh, under the main city there. And they've turned it into basically a theme park. It's this underground theme park. They did this in 1992. So it's got um, this massive 180-seat amphitheater. It's got uh, basketball courts. It's got, like, ping-pong tables. It's got mini golf. It's got bowling. You get carried around this this big underground theme park in the old machinery that was used for mining once. They've got a huge underground lake, and you can go on the lake in little boats. They've wow. got this Ferris wheel that takes you up around it, and you can look at the stalactites and the stalagmites as you go around on it. And they've transformed this disused salt mine they didn't know what to do with for 50 years into the best theme park in the world. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, we should go there. <laughs> and that's in Turda. That's in Turda, yeah. yeah. The Edict of Turda is quite a famous thing, which is, I think it was a kind of thing where it meant that in Transylvania everyone was allowed to have any religion they wanted and it was one of the first places in the world that had this. And I have this theory that that's why kind of people think of Transylvania as kind of this weird kind of gothic place because the Catholic Church saw that it was a place where anyone could have any religion they wanted and they kind of didn't like it. 
Oh, yeah, I think good. it might be because they had a leader called Vlad the Impaler who impaled <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people on spikes. <laughs> Look, there are good, sides to, there are good points on both sides in this argument. Let's, uh, let's move on to our final fact of the show, and that is Chizinski. Yeah, my fact is that until about 4,000 years ago, humans didn't notice the colour blue. <laughs> or most humans didn't notice the colour blue. Okay. Just yeah. escape their notice. This, uh, so I'd not heard of this before. Uh, and I, so since reading into it, it's, it's really fascinating. It's amazing. So the idea effectively is that there was they, someone looked through all the old literature that we have, any bit of writing, ancient Iceland, uh, Homer's Odyssey, all that sort of stuff. And any time that there should have been a reference to blue, they used a different color. And so the idea is that they actually think that maybe because there was no word describing it, we just didn't notice the sky, but we just weren't looking <laughs> at the big blue thing in the sky, and as a result of not naming it, it was just blended into different colours. Yeah, it is extremely controversial, that. Yeah, so this is a, this is a very controversial, or it's a controversial idea, but I think what corroborates it really nicely is that so this guy who went through all these ancient texts, and it is from many different uh, cultures, so yeah, Greece, China, Japan, uh, Hebrew languages, none of them had the word for the colour blue, um, they started off all having black and white. They were the first words to color words to appear. And then red was the next one. Um, then yellows and greens came in. And then blue was last. And the idea that maybe people weren't really noticing blue or sort of couldn't distinguish it from others does make a bit of sense when you look at this research that was done by a guy called Jules Davidoff. And he did this research in Namibia with the Himba tribe. And the Himba tribe uh, does not have a word for blue at all. And you can look this up. It's really, really cool to do. What he did was he showed uh, members of the Himba tribe a uh, series of, I think it was 12 dots, and 11 of them were bright green, and one of them was bright blue. And he said, which one is the blue one? And they couldn't tell. They just didn't know. It all looked the same to them, and so they, they really couldn't distinguish it. But then that tribe has many, many more words for green than we have. And they showed them a uh, 12 green circles and said, which one is the different shade of green? And if you look at the green circles, you cannot tell. I can't tell which one was the lighter shade of green. And everyone who they tested immediately spotted the lighter shade of green. But the idea is that because they have more words to describe it and to distinguish between them, that we sort of learn, our, our, we automatically learn to distinguish that. I think it's a really, really interesting idea. Yeah, it's amazing. There's another kind of fact, which isn't really a fact, which no one could actually see the colour blue. Uh, or maybe they were colorblind or something back in the day. And the idea is uh, Homer wrote about the sea, and he said it was the wine-dark sea. Mm -hmm. And people are like, why is he saying wine-dark instead of blue? Wine-dark? Yeah. Because when you see the sea in the evening at sunset, mm. it, does, it, do, it can look the color of wine. Yeah, also, we don't know what yeah. color. Maybe all their wine was bright blue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just no one's mentioned it. Well, there is a theory that they, um, in those days, they used to add water to the wine because the wine was a lot kind of stronger, so they'd add water to it, and the water might have had a high alkaline content, which made it look a bit more blue, <laughs> and they yeah. made their wine look a bit more blue. That seems like a little bit like clutching at straws to me. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we'll ever resolve this argument one way or the other. No, it is amazing to think of it, though. It's yeah, very it's great. Very cool. um, I went onto a website called XKCD. Like, yeah. You guys must know this. It's a webcomic. <laughs> and Randall Monroe is in tonight. <laughs> and so it's a webcomic by Randall Monroe, and he kind of um, explains things. And he did um, a really good kind of study where he looked at colours, and he had men and women looking at all different colours and saw how they described them to see if there was any difference. And they found that actually men and women was pretty much the same, 
Uh, apart from women tend to add more things like light green and lime green, whereas men would just say something's green. Just green. It's just green. <laughs> <laughs> but what he, what he did... So that was a general thing. But Cla- what he did was... Classic lads. Let's <laughs> <laughs> all go, go down the pub and not qualify colours. <laughs> Sorry, James. So what he did, what he did was, that was kind of a general thing, but he looked at all the different things that people had said and tried to find which were the most male comments and which were the most female comments. So these are the colours that women said much more often than men. So dusty teal, blush pink, (laughs) dusty lavender, butter yellow and dusky rose. So they were things that women said that men really didn't say. And the things that men said that women really didn't say for colours were penis. <laughs> I mean, it's not that is not one colour for a start. It's just green, mate. <laughs> You've got to see a doctor. <laughs> beautiful grass as green as my penis. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, um, penis, uh, dunno, beige, spelt with an A, and WTF. Wow. Wow. Yeah, apparently women can't see those (laughs) colours. True. True fact. <laughs> um, oh speaking God. of penises, I found... Uh, and, and, and the colour blue. Um, <laughs> scientists have worked out how now to... if they, they, they can flash a blue light at your eyes and give you an erection. It's, okay. it's a really new thing that's happening at the moment. Um, at the moment... At the moment, they've only been able to give mice erections. <laughs> but they're working on it for humans. And the idea is that it stimulates a thing inside your eye uh, that leads directly to a part of your penis, which I wrote down, it's called the... Uh, <laughs> I don't uh, think that's the important part of this. <laughs> it's called corpus cavernosum. Uh, it's a oh, region yeah. that gets filled up with blood oh, yeah. to facilitate oh, yeah, yeah, an yeah. erection. So it kind of, you see this light and it kind of just opens it up and it can, it, you can go crazy. And, uh, and I, I actually, I don't understand the science of it, but I was really hardened to read the main <laughs> science. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's, that was heartened, wasn't it, then? Heartened. Heartened. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, you're aroused to realise. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy, the scientist, is working on it. He calls it a rectiliopogenetic stimulator. Uh, and when he was asked about it, so he said, uh, it's quite simple. Once you get past the gene therapy part of it, shine a blue light, cause dick to get hard. And that's, that's basically the, sh- the that's short science. of it. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Was it's it... to do with an algae as well. It's a, apparently a bit of an algae that they've taken out. Okay. And I don't know if, like... You know, if I, don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this about the new alternative to Viagra, which is um, playing sounds to your penis. What? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like Viagra doesn't always work, and sometimes it has side effects, but this is the thing. They get a machine, they put it on the men's 
parts, and they play very, very high clicks like this. It James, is real. do you like dolphins a bit much? <laughs> <laughs> is this a very, very coded way of telling us about your awakening when you saw Flipper? <laughs> <laughs> But it does work. It does work. That's incredible. It kind of excites the blood vessels to kind of open. Wow. Wow. This is real science, people. <laughs> I mean, I've got a fact about eyes and colour perception, but I'm not sure we can go back. <laughs> um, I'd be really happy if we went back. <laughs> OK. Yeah, let's go back to eyes, yeah. OK. Um, tarantulas have evolved uh, to be blue, or for parts of them to be blue, separately... Uh, on eight different occasions in nature, and we don't know why. Why do they keep forgetting how to be blue and having to re-evolve it? <laughs> when they branched off into separate... I think it's separate genuses and separate species, mm-hmm. or maybe it's separate species within the same genus, they have independently, in the, once they've branched I off, see. evolved to be blue. Amazing. And we have wow. no idea. And they don't have good colour vision, so it's not like they know. That's the really weird thing. And it's not driven by sexual selection because they can't see when each other are blue. They have no idea. Um, they can't tell. So we have no idea. Maybe it hides them from their prey or maybe it you know, has some other effect. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah. How weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was reading that you can now get your eyes turned blue if you have brown eyes uh, for $5,000. The idea is that actually right behind every brown eye is a blue eye because it's all to do with colour. So you can actually burn away the brown and sitting behind oh, it is I the see. natural blue. Yeah. yeah, so people are doing this now. They say that babies all have blue eyes. I don't know if it's true, but they do say That's that, true. don't they? As they all babies do. have very pale blue eyes for right. the first few days and then they sort themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> get their acts together. That's really cool. If I hadn't recently spent all my money renting bees, I would definitely... <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's wrap up. Should we wrap up? Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about things that we have said over the course of this podcast, you can find us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James at Eggshaped, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. Or, uh, uh, or you can go to no such thing as a fish.com. That is our website. And we have all of our previous episodes up there. Uh, thank you at home for listening to this episode. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Goodbye. Bye.